welcome to Where Have All the Children Gone podcast. This is uh, next topic is on the Children Who Kill series. My name is Allie, and for those of you that didn't hear my anti bullying podcast for this month on Drew Ferraro, I think it's well worth the listen. As I was researching that podcast, I came across another case that happened to a student at that very same school in 1991, which was Crescenta Valley High School. Children Who Kill series, because of the nature of this topic, it contains graphic content regarding children which may not be suitable for young audiences. Having that out of the way, sometimes I forget. Berlin Cosman was a 17-year-old senior at Crescenta Valley High School who had her future in front of her. She was a Falcon basketball standout who had just been awarded a scholarship to Missouri Western State College. She was a beloved sister and daughter, and by all accounts, a well-known and well-liked kid. The Crescenta Valley High School prom occurred that June. Berlin and her boyfriend, Kenneth Schaefer, attended the prom, and then went to an after-prom party at the Crown Sterling Suites Hotel in Anaheim. At one point, according to reports at the time, Berlin decided to go to, to the sleep room while others continued to party. While she slept, Paul Crowder, then 19 years old, a high school dropout after having turned to alcohol after losing his father at 15, was also at the prom party. Crowder admitted to carrying a 357 Magnum and a 12-gauge shotgun to the party to serve as a bodyguard for his friend Brian Burke to protect him from another teenager. Burke's date for the prom had been threatened by an ex-boyfriend if she went to the dance with anyone else. As Crowder became drunk, It was said he brandished the weapon as he partied. Witnesses recounted similar versions of Crowder's angry remarks directed at Jill Capillaro, excuse me, Capillaro and against Berlin Cosman. After they asked him to go to another room if he didn't want to sleep. Now throughout the night he drank alcohol, brandishing that gun, he'd do dry shots at people, threatened others, and toward the morning. Crowder began arguing with partygoers. He said about two of them, I hate them, fuck them, they're just dissing me. I hate them, I want to kill them. Those fucking bitches, I hate those bitches, I just want to kill them all. Shortly before dawn, after reloading his pistol, Mr. Crowder returned to the room where Miss Coslin was sleeping He stood in the doorway with the gun in his hand and fired a shot. The bullet hit Miss Cosman in the head and killed her. Mr. Crowder fled the hotel and threw the gun in a bush. He called home for a ride and hid until the ride arrived. After he arrived home, he went to sleep. Police arrested him later that day. The defense stated Crowder was drunk. 
His projected blood alcohol level at the time of the shooting was 0.196%. And that he tripped when he entered the room and the gun went off accidentally and happened to hit Berlin in the head, killing her instantly. There was mention of him possibly tripping over beer-filled party ball that was in the room after Crowder himself does not mention tripping at all. My question is, why did he go in the room in the first place? And how did he get access to their room? Wasn't there a lock or key of some sort? Now, Crowder was found guilty of second-degree murder. It took the jury just one day to reach a verdict in the fatal post-prom shooting of Berlin Cosman in Anaheim. The foreman said none of us liked the decision because he was young, but it was the only decision they could make. After the verdict, jurors told Marshall Crowder's defense attorney that once they agreed on the implied malice of entering the room with the gun, it made no difference whether the gun discharged accidentally as Crowder tripped. Crowder, who was also found guilty of using a firearm in the commission of a felony, faced a likely term of 17 years to life when Orange County Superior Court Judge Theodore E. Millard sentenced him on November 1st. Now, when the verdict was read, Crowder showed no emotion, but very various members of his family wept. Berlin's sister Morgan had fond memories of her childhood in Crescent Valley before the murder. The family would go to the park, play pickup games, and they would just spend the weekend at Monstro's Park hanging out. She had memories of Berlin being the big sister. Morgan was 12 when her sister was killed. She remembers Berlin was excited about her scholarship. She had a four-year scholarship to Missouri Western. A few weeks before prom, their family went to a Chinese restaurant downtown and they all sat at dinner and signed the papers for the scholarship. They took pictures, Morgan recalled, and it felt like she was spreading her wings and becoming an adult. You know, sometimes when you get a test that wasn't good and you need the parents to sign it, Berlin would sign it for me, she said. One of my best memories was when mom wouldn't let me see Pretty Woman because it was about a prostitute and Berlin snuck me out and we went to the movie in Glendale. I remember when we got on the off-ramp to the 134, she winked at me and said, we're going to have so much fun tonight. At night, Berlin would put little notes under her sister's door that read, I love you. And right before she died, they were really beginning to get very close. But after the murder, the family seemed to disintegrate. We eat dinner at the dinner table. We sat down and there was an empty chair. My dad just cried. It was the first time I saw him cry like that. We never sat at the dinner table again. Morgan added that her mother became really quiet after that, especially because after the murder and throughout the trial, the, the Cosman family received many crank and sometimes threatening calls. All the creeps were coming out and calling or leaving us emails. There were voicemails when someone would pretend to be Berlin, and she said that the Crowder's family called upset after the verdict. And then there were stories and rumors that were spinning around about that night. We heard that one girl of the party walked in on Berlin being shot, looked in the room and said, what a bummer, and went out of the room. 
and people lied to the investigators. Some said Berlin had committed suicide. We so wanted to get out of La Crescenta. Morgan, her sister Turan, and mother Susan opposed Paul Crowder's parole. They sent letters to the governor, and Morgan had started an online campaign petitioning that he would not be paroled. She never forgave Paul for what he has done. I can go on with my life and feel just fine with that. She does say that she has to respect her father's grieving process. It's been 20 years and I can only say I stand up for my big sister. A letter in favor of releasing Crowder, written by Berlin's father, was presented to the board this last October. Because the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation's Board of Parole hearings voted in favor of paroling him in 2010. But that bid was rejected by the then governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. In October of 2011, a parole board in Orange County found that the now 39-year-old Crowder is suitable for parole. However, Governor Jerry Brown reversed the state's board decision that granted him parole. Morgan Berlin's sister stated, My father just wants this to end. I love my father, but he made me a promise when he was contacting Bill Crowder. He promised he wouldn't help in any way. But he did. He would write letters on favor of releasing Crowder. Ever since... The uh, Berlin's father had started corresponding with Crowder since Crowder sent him a letter of apology. In March of 2012, Governor Jerry Brown again denied parole to Crowder because Brown believes that Crowder, now 39, presents a danger to society and is still not accepted responsibility for his actions on June 21, 1991. According to Governor Brown's decision, he acknowledged Mr. Crowder has made efforts to improve himself while incarcerated. He earned a GED, completed vocational training, and he has held several institutional jobs. He has participated in some self-help programming, including Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous, Correctional Learning Network programs, Breaking Barriers workshop and anger management classes. And for many years, he has mentored youth through the Straight Life program. I commend Mr. Crowder for taking these positive steps. But they are outweighed by the negative factors that de demonstrate he remains unsuitable for parole. Now I have to say, if all you heard was that first part, you go, well, why doesn't he let him out? He's taken every the classes and everything. He's, he's made great depths, but there's addition that I, I found interesting that Governor Brown... Found, uh, did dig into, and although I've not always been Governor Brown's uh, fan, I have to be a fan of his for really being responsible in this uh, parole reversal. He said the murder that Mr. Crowder committed was senseless and truly reprehensible. He killed a promising young woman as she lay sleeping in the early morning following her senior prom. Mr. Crowder's actions not only took Ms. Cosman away from her family and friends, but deprived Ms. Cosman of a bright future that included a college scholarship. His actions devastated the lives of her loved ones and has had a long-lasting impact on the community.
The circumstances of the murder make Mr. Crowder's claim that the shooting was accidental, accidental unbelievable. He told his 2010 mental health evaluator that he tripped and the gun went off. He said he initially thought the bullet had gone into the ceiling. The probation report indicates Mr. Crowder said the gun went off while he was on the floor. Yet the bullet hit the sleeping Miss Cosman, whom he had angrily said he had wanted to kill earlier that night in the temple, entering her head from a downward trajectory and going through the pillow and the mattress. If the shooting was really accidental, it seems he would have attempted to administer aid or called for help rather than running and hiding. Mr. Crowder's claim that the shooting was accidental is not his only claim that is belied by the record. He also claims not to have threatened to kill Ms. Cosman or to have even been angry with her. But that is not what the witnesses at the party observed. Witnesses at the party observed Mr. Crowder argued with Ms. Cosman and heard him make threatening statements about hating her and wanting to kill her. I cannot ignore the evidence that Mr. Crowder engaged in threatening behavior with his gun throughout the night, or that he was angry with Ms. Cosman, or that he said he wanted to kill her, or that after shooting her in the head, he immediately ran away and hid. And unless I ignore this evidence, the only conclusion I can draw is that Mr. Crowder claims that he was not angry with Ms. Cosman and he did not threaten to kill her and the gun discharged accidentally while he tripped and the bullet just happened to hit Ms. Cosman in the head are simply unbelievable. Mr. Crowder's dishonesty about the murder and his behavior leading up to it shows that he has thus far either been unwilling or unable to accept responsibility by minimizing his culpability for the murder cast doubt over his claims of remorse and indicates he is not truly learn from his mistakes. My conclusions about Mr. Crowder's current mental status are confirmed by his statement during a recent psychological evaluation in which he characterized the threatening gestures he made throughout the night when he pointed his gun at people as having done it in a playful manner. Pointing a gun at someone is never playful. And I am sure that the high school kids he threatened with his gun that night felt scared and uneasy. This statement is yet another sign that Mr. Crowder does not generally understand or accept responsibility for the wrongfulness of his actions. Until he does, there is no assurance that he does not remain prone to violence if released back into society. Evidence of recent illegal activity by Mr. Crowder in prison also indicates that he has not been rehabilitated. His file contains a confidential memorandum from September 2011 that indicates he's involved in transporting drugs and gang communications within the prison. A similar confidential memorandum from 2010 also indicates he was responsible for delivering gang communications in the prison. Prison officials deem the sources of the information in these memorandums reliable. The file contains a number of other confidential memorandums from 1996 through 2008 that indicate Mr. Crowder was involved in gang activity and drug sales in the prison. Mr. Crowder's participation in these illegal acts shows his propensity for criminal behavior has not changed. It also indicates that, he, that his claims of remorse, insight, and personal growth are contrived and insincere. I also find it telling that Mr. Crowder has not taken any steps to improve himself or address my concerns since I reviewed him, reviewed his case in November 
of 2011. At that time, I noted that though Mr. Crowder's inability to control his anger played a large role in the crime, he had not taken any anger management classes since 2002. According to Mr. Crowder's prison records, he still has not participated in any further anger management classes. In fact, Mr. Crowder does not appear to have participated in any self-help since September of 2011. Given the connection between alcohol and anger and the crime, Mr. Crowder's failure to make continuing efforts to address these issues gives me further concern that he would be susceptible to similar violent conduct if he were to be released now. I have considered the evidence in the record that is relevant to whether Mr. Crowder is currently dangerous. When considered as a whole, I find the evidence I have discussed here is why he currently poses a danger to society if released from prison. Therefore, I reverse the decision of the parole. Mr. Crowder who remains, is to remain at dual state prison in Tracy, California. Now in 2020, he came up for parole again. And the thing that was interesting here is that he himself, Mr. Crowder, stipulated to be unsuitable for to be released. And he will be reviewed again in five years for parole suitability in May of 2025. He currently resides at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. Now, the one good thing that did come out of this, not for Berlin, not for her family, but for other family members of other students, is shortly after Berlin's murder, members of the Crescenta Valley started a prom plus, a supervised after prom party. It gave and continues to give Crescenta Valley High School students and their guests an alternative to an unsupervised party. Over the years, the event has grown with Prom Plus Club at the high school as a young youth arm of the organization. When the organizers speak, they always refer to the tragic death of their local student, high school student. So from Berlin's tragic death, this Prom Plus has continued to spread the word that this tragedy could happen to any child. It has given students a choice and perhaps have saved some lives in the process. Berlin has left a legacy in her community. It was an awful way to leave it, but she did. And her sister Morgan said that Berlin would have liked that. Thank you again for joining me. I'd like to give credit to LATimes.com, www.gov.com, and the executive report on parole review decisions that helped me get the information for this podcast. I also thank Feslian Studios for the music for this podcast. Thank you very much. See you next time.
Thank you.